would you say you do here? Well, look, I already told you. I am good at dealing with people. Okay, so I'm here with Molly. Um, so, hello, Molly. How you doing? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you? I am tired and drinking an iced caramel macchiato upside down double shot from Starbucks. Right. Now. Oh, wow, I'm drinking ice water. <laughs> so one of us is healthy and the other one is not. <laughs> oh no, I, I I never said I'm healthy. I'm just. Didn't you get a Peloton? Um, in your garage? yes. Yes. Um, so I love it. Um, but then I got sick for literally almost a month and I was better for nine days. No, non COVID sick. Um, I was better for about nine days and then I got COVID sick. So I haven't been on that Peloton for quite a bit, but actually this coming week, I want to get back into it. Now, like, is it, I've never like looked into it. Is it like, um, like you have to pay to watch someone online do like bike with you or something um, like that? How does that work? So you purchase the bike and then it's like, uh, if you own the bike, then I think it's like a twelve ninety nine a month, um, subscription to not only their biking, uh, routines, but also like yoga and weightlifting and Pilates and all running and all this other stuff. Whoa. Um, and it's like um, a person in the Peloton studio with music and they're coaching you through it and they're motivating you through it. Um, I don't really listen. Is it live? To... Um, it can be live. Yeah, you can catch it when it's uh, streaming live or you can just stream it afterward. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. But what I do is I just turn down... Um, turn down the volume and the music but i'll put on the closed caption and then i'll put on my own music and blast that really loud and then just <laughs> pay attention to uh like the cadence and the resistance uh dialing it up and down and stuff to you know make the workout more challenging and such and and that's how i do it um, what, do you, what do you listen and, to uh it depends mostly like like norwegian death metal or like like some kind of more underground hip hop stuff. Nice Norwegian death metal. That's that is nuanced as shit. Yeah, I didn't know that. What 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 what's like a band? Of uh, what's a Norwegian death metal band? Um, wow, I'm drawing blank. Okay. And how many J's and K's and Y's are in the name? Oh well, it's actually like a normal English sounding name, but the band mm. members, yeah, their their names are. JKK. Jorgen Jorgen Jorgen. KKK. Yeah, exactly. Not KKK. <laughs> no, no, no. Delete that. <laughs> JJKJ, Fjorgen Jargon, Bjorgen. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so tell us what you, uh, like, the, I guess the, the title of your job. And then, uh, yeah, what do you do? So, I work for a nationwide agency. I will not say the name. Um, but I'm a registered na registered nurse case manager for a hospice agency. So I'm a hospice nurse. 
And that's, is it, um, you kind of like, from what I understand, you can like help people kind of on the way out. You make that a more comfortable kind of transition, so to speak. Right. So um, when people qualify for hospice services, there's a very specific criteria that they need to meet medically uh, to be able to qualify for the Medicare, Medicaid benefit that we all have and we all pay into with every paycheck. Um, but when people elect hospice services, we come on board to support not only the client and the family, um, but everyone involved, other caregivers through hopefully a comfortable, peaceful, dignified passing. Um, it doesn't always go that way, but most of the time it does. Um, so I guess I like to consider myself as like a crossing over technician or <laughs> The euphemisms, I like it. Crossing over expert, but basically, in a blunt nutshell, I help people die. And are you, how do I put this? Have you become desensitized to it yet? How, well, how long have you been working? Have you been doing this? Good question, because, you know, like a week ago, I would have said no, but now I think kind of yes. So I've only been doing this. Uh, since August 2nd, so almost seven months ago. Um, I have been working in healthcare for seven and a half years, primarily in home health geriatrics, but did a couple different things along the way. Um, so not desensitized as in like lost my empathy or my compassion or my sensitivity, but um for example, someone very, very important to me passed away just this Monday evening, so like five days ago, and I have not even cried about it, talked about it, thought about it. I just haven't had the time or just I haven't gone there yet to think about it or process it. So someone close to you personally or you mean personally? Actually, yes, oh, personally. Oh, oh. Yes. Yeah. So. <sighs> Can we? Can I ask what happened? Or I don't. I don't. I don't want to like. Oh well, cross she just. Line. She she just had suffered uh, several major comorbidities, as we call them, um, systemic diseases, and. What does that mean? Systemic means like it'll affect your entire body. Like uh, so, for example, kidneys. It'll affect the brain, the heart, the eyes, the. Uh, did I say? Diabetes? <laughs> My brain is not here right now. Um, so <laughs> diabetes, um, diabetes will affect everything. Uh, cardiovascular. Oh, uh, in her, I want to say mid-ish 80s. So, I mean, she oh. lived her full life, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you ask, am I desensitized to it? I would say, unfortunately, as of five days ago, yes, I am. Because that's the thing that kind of, that, that was the final callus on the... Well, it's just, I've only cried over one of my client's deaths before, um, but I haven't. I mean, I've had, like, not hundreds. I've had probably 40 now, um, either directly or indirectly experienced, meaning I was there or not there when it happened, or I did or did not do the death visit. Um, what is that, the death visit? 
So the death visit is when um, someone passes, whether it be in the facility or in home. And then the staff or the family member will call us because we are 24-7 available. Call us at 2.40 in the morning and say, hey, grandma died. And then we go out there and we do the death visit, which includes a pronouncing time of death, um, calling the funeral home, doing post-mortem care, which means giving them a nice bath, changing their clothes, you know, taking oh, their Oh, you have to do that too? Yeah, we do that. Post-death? Boredom care. Oh, my God. So, yeah, it was a little... Uh, the first time I ever did it, and the first time I ever touched... I, I, I don't like to say dead body because it sounds like so harsh, but that's what it is. Let's not be fluffy about it. Uh, the first time I touched my first dead body on my first death visit. Yeah, I was scared. I was really scared approaching him and looking at him and touching him and as soon as as soon as you see someone, you can tell they're dead and then when you touch them, you can definitely tell um but it it was weird and it was difficult like mentally, emotionally and physically uh changing and unchanging the clothing of a literally dead weight body especially if you don't have help. That's hard work. <laughs> and it hurts and you're sweating. Oh, so so most of the time you're alone when you when you're doing Um actually, um was it my last one? It was either my last one or second to last one was my first time that I was totally doing it alone because uh most of our clients are in facilities, so then you have all the the CNAs and nurses and people to help you there. Um, and if it's a home death, most of the time, one of the family members will want to help in some sort of way, either fall in hands on, or maybe just, you know, hand you something as you need it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a workout to take the clothes off of a dead body and then redress that dead body. You have to roll them around and move their knees around, move their arms around, move their head around. And of course you have to do it respectfully. So you have to like support their body and hold their head as you're doing this. Like right. think of how you would change, you know, how delicately you would change a nine day old baby, except, you know, 150 pounds. Yeah. I'm sure like handling this is different from like handling a dead body on a battlefield, right? The battlefield, you're just like, okay, it's a bag of meat. Let's go, 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 go. Right. <laughs> roll, roll it over. Let's get. Let's get. Let's let's get back into the bunker or whatever. I don't, I'm just making shit up, but whatever. Yeah. Whereas this, yeah, there's definitely like a very deliberate, respectful, by you know, by the numbers process and. Right. So, uh, uh, before we get to the questions from from other listeners, readers, people, fans, just really quick, take me to the just just kind of the bullet point. Oh, that's phrasing. Uh, the the step by step, like so. You you know a, a the a client calls saying hey we, we want we want uh, there's six months left according to the doctors or whatever we would like your care and so then you you visit the family for the first time and you, you, there's like a an overview kind of talk about how things are going to go and then you you visit them once a week or something like that just kind of take me through the whole uh, process right so. Uh... The nurse case manager, um, my position, we don't do any of that. Uh, 
prior intake kind of stuff. That's all done between the uh, referring physician who writes the order for hospice consult. And then it will go, um, it'll have to be run through their insurance. It will have to be reviewed by um, my supervisors and our medical team to see if they qualify because, you know, just because grandma's old and a little bit forgetful doesn't mean she qualifies for hospice. Um, and then one of our uh, hospice care coordinators, which is kind of like the liaison between the doctor and the family, um, they will call the family and give an education session that we call Hospice 101. And basically what it is, what we do, how we can help, what we cover, um, you know, and how we'll be there to support the family through the six-month mark to the two-month mark to, you know, it's going to happen any day now until when it happens and then after it happens. And then um, do you, is it a set visit? Like you, you go back to the house like once a week to check on them or, or what's, yeah, what, how's depends. that schedule? Um, and it just depends on the nurse's assessment upon admission. We call it acuity levels. So like an acuity level four is somebody who's still walking and talking, but their doctor gave them six months to live because let's say they have some form of cancer, but they are still mobile and doing things. Um, so that kind of client, yeah, I would see them once a week. Um, if we get clients, uh, unfortunately, sometimes we get clients that uh, they don't receive the order and we don't receive the referral until until they are literally like imminent, um, meaning, you know, sometimes we have people that actually die on admission while the legal consents are being signed, then grandma dies in the other room. So that hasn't quite happened to me yet, but it does happen. Um, we just had someone, uh, we had a client pass away yesterday who was only on services for, I don't even think they were on service, yeah, about 24 hours. Um, so you want to try to catch people before that. Um, the reason is, is because a, a huge part of what we do is we, uh, improve quality of life through, you know, these, these, whatever we call them, the golden hours or the 11th hours or whatever. Um, but we want it, it it's kind of like uh like you said earlier uh, it's kind of like make a wish for the dying we want to bring them joy and fun and pleasure and experiences before it's too late um so i i'll ask one question just before we get to the the listeners questions um so just kind of listening to what you're saying does it has it ever happened to where i think you you brought up it was something like in order for you to accept the clients um, on board, I guess it's something like they have to have six months left. Something well, like so, I mean, and obviously that's an art more so than a science and nobody can truly predict how long someone has, but in, in diseases like end stage renal failure end stage stage cancer, um, COPD, uh, cardiac stuff, you know, um, those, the doctor or provider can can usually accurately predict a prognosis, um, but they definitely have to have in writing a certified prognosis of six months of life remaining or less. 
Um, they have to be aware of this. They have to choose to no longer seek any curative or restorative treatments. So what that means is no more chemo, no more radiation, no more injections, no more blood transfusions, uh, sometimes no more insulin, um, no more, you know, blood thinners, heart meds, all those crazy ones. Um, yeah. Like just, so. it's just, you're just letting, you're agreeing to just let go. And just right, like out, I'm yeah. done. I'm done with all of the doctor's appointments and all the pokes and all the meds, and I'm done with having all these side effects and feeling like crap. And I tried, and the doctor says, unfortunately, there's not much more we can do. So I want to be done, and I just want to live the rest of my life comfortably at home, wherever home is, and accept help for comfort care for end of life. So my question is, is like taking all that in consideration when, um, let's say six months ended and then you, Molly personally felt like, like they haven't, they haven't died or expired or passed or whatever the term is. And you're like, no, like, I think they just need a little bit more care. Like, can you go to your boss of insurance or something and say like, like, there, I, I think they just need a few more months or like, are you allowed any say in that? Or is that just up to the, the family? Oh no, absolutely. Um, it's really not up to the family at all. Actually zero oh. up to the family. Um, it's, it's up to Medicare um, and Medicare fraud is a big, big, big deal. So the family can't just be like, Oh, please, please, please just keep us on board for two more months. And then, Okay, let me just make him look worse on paper than he really <laughs> is. Like, that's Medicare fraud, and that's a federal offense, and that's me losing my license and being fined and possibly serving time. So I don't mess around with that. Um, but the biggest thing is we have to show a decline in in many different ways. So let's say grandma weighed 140 pounds six months ago, and now she weighs 128, and now she's incontinent when she wasn't before and she's eating less and she's had falls and she needs help with everything meaning feeding bathing grooming changing uh toileting hygiene stuff uh she needs mostly assist or total assist with those types of things when before she could kind of do that stuff on her own, you know, and now uh, she used to cruise around in her walker, but now she's in a wheelchair and she can't self-propel. Well, that's the decline. So if we can show all that kind of stuff, then yeah, we will just recertify grandma for another, actually it's, we do this every two months, not every six months. So every mm. 60 days we look at the case and we look for, um, a noticeable and significant decline that can be documented through weights and vital signs and things like that. Do you take pictures um, and stuff? No, no, no. Oh, okay, okay. No. Um, in my old home health job in a different state, we were allowed to take photos of wounds so we could document, you know, what they look like and how big they are and stuff, but no way. Um, so, and then sometimes, you know, sometimes people get better um they they gain weight um they get a little stronger they get a little more clear-headed um they don't have as many falls anymore and and then when that 60-day mark comes up and they're 
stable, um, stable with no decline or stable and maybe even some improvement, then at that time we all look at it as a, a team. Um, and then grandma might graduate. So we call it a graduation, but it's really a live discharge, meaning the client discharged from our services and they're living. They didn't discharge because they expired. And then at that point, we just, you know, good for you, grandma. You got stronger. You got better. You don't need our help anymore. But, you know, always remember us when you need us. We'll be here. and We'll be back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. We'll be back. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so uh, the first of the questions here, um, what is, or I guess who, um, was the worst and or best client you've ever had? You know what, it's... It, if you can talk about it, if you... If you oh yeah, I mean, I can't say names or anything. I'll, you know, Especially. if I'm speaking kind of slowly, it's because I'm trying to choose my words wisely. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. Um... <laughs> 95% of the time, the worst is not the actual client themselves. It's a family member, unfortunately. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, there's, yeah. There's some family dynamics. There's, there's, oh, man. Um, a I couple didn't think of about that. I, I, sorry, just to interrupt. But like, I, I, I'm sure like the training for this job is very extensive. But I mean, I'm assuming there's probably not a whole chapter on like, how to deal and juggle family dynamics in that drama, mm, right? No. It's probably that that probably just comes down to like you, Molly, as a person on how to handle that, right? Yeah, um, and they don't even really teach you that in nursing school. Um, you know, you take some psych classes and stuff, but that's why we're fortunate. Um, every hospice company, every hospice team will have a social worker and a chaplain on board to help with those more type of uh, psychological psych oh, that's cool. psychiatry type things. Um, one of my best, most favorite clients, um, she passed away very unexpectedly and very suddenly of something that was totally not related to her diagnosis. So that one was upsetting to me. Um, I didn't get to say goodbye to her, so I didn't get closure because, you know, you develop relationships with these clients and family members, and usually things will take their course over the days, weeks, months, and you, you ride that wave with everyone and you get your closure. But, uh, in this case, it was super abrupt and I wasn't even there. What happened, and, if, if I can ask? Um, so I don't know, um... I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, I think. Do you think some, like, a third party got involved? Oh, in no, 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 no. Oh, okay, okay, okay. No, so um, I'm pretty sure she had some sort of event, uh, like, you know, physical event while going to the bathroom. Um, and that happens, you know, people die on the toilet. I think that's how Judy Garland died, I think, died on the toilet. I'm not sure, but you hear those, you hear those stories of someone died going to the bathroom because right. they, you know, 
Um, just the strain and. Yeah, but I mean, I would never know unless there was an autopsy done, and you don't really do autopsies in hospice unless there's something fishy suspected. Are are you allowed to request the results of an autopsy if there is one? Like just out of your own curiosity? No, no, because that's HIPAA. That's a HIPAA violation, and I'm not on a need-to-know basis, so no. Yeah, that makes sense. So you never got any closure. That's that was kind. Of, well, what, what what made her your favorite? Um, she was just a cute, cute older lady and sassy, and we would talk to each other, kind of like, "Hey, girl, hey, girl," <laughs> like that. And it was just fun. And I didn't have that kind of relationship with any of my other clients that I can ever really think of in any of the seven and a half years I've been in healthcare. Um, so we just had a cute little dynamic going on and, and then she was gone out of nowhere. So that sucked. Damn. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. But yeah, she was, she was 80 something and she had her long, like two inch long acrylic nails, like all glittered out and gold glitter. And she was just cute, sassy old lady trying to be fashionable and funky and i would always be like hey girl your nails look great um just uh, for the side have you ever or i i know like and stereotypically speaking like you think of an old person doing all this but have you ever had to do it for like a, a young kid or young child um i have That's not fun. yet and we do take pediatric clients um it's pretty rare where i live um i imagine if i lived in southern california we might have um like more kids with cancer um but yeah, we we do. We take those clients if they're appropriate. I just like personally That's got to be emotionally devastating, man. Um I mean, for because me, because an old person, you're kind of like not dis- to be disrespectful, but you're like, okay, you 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 ran your bases, yeah. Right? You, 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 yeah. But a kid, like a six year old with cancer, like watching that happen, like that's that's got to. I mean, I would guess, I'm assuming it would kind of suck a little more to like watch that go. Oh yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with that. But then for me personally, not having any children, it would not be as hard as if I did have children. Oh, because you don't have that like innate kind of right. I don't have the memories of the birth experience and you know that kind of stuff. So I guess that's true. It's like people who don't have dogs would have an easier time like putting down a dog, right? Than someone who owns like nine (laughs) dogs or something. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a perfect analogy. Yes, dogs and babies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yep. Okay, uh, question two for Molly here. Uh, do oh man, do all do all dead people smell the same? Oh, so that's that's a good question. Um, they all look the same relatively. Um, as soon as I walk into a room, it's obvious that the person's gone, and it's based on their color. They turn kind of this yellowish gray. Um, very quickly after their last breath. I'm talking like within minutes. 
Um, oh, really? Oh, so yeah. when you go when there's like an open casket, like that, that's not real. That's like makeup and and. Oh, that's that's like pounds and pounds of makeup and literally like putty, like filler putty, um, topical prosthetic. You know. I mean, uh, I knew they did stuff, but I didn't know it was like. Oh yeah, basically it's, making a mannequin of it's, you. Um, how do they call that kind of makeup? can't think of it but when they do like prosthetics to make like a you know halloween kind of makeup that's that's yeah, pretty much yeah. what is done or like a, a silicone kind of yeah yeah to like fill out the face and make it look so not within so minutes you're turning gray yellow yeah yeah and is that just from no no more blood pumping around uh, that, but it's it's the decline of days or maybe even weeks of no nutrition and no oral intake. And what? So I guess the question is, what what's the smell or what's the? So they don't really have a smell unless I mean they may have a urine smell or like a like a stool poop smell. Sure, um, yeah. They don't really have a smell, but what can happen, and it hasn't happened to me yet, but it will. Um, so when I respond to a death visit, I, as a part of the services, I provide what is called post-mortem care. So I will, if they have a catheter in, remove the catheter. If they have a brief on for incontinence, remove the brief, wipe up anything, do a changing, do a cleaning, wash their face, wash their body, wash their hands, wash their mouth. Um, if they have any jewelry on or any dentures or anything, remove all that. And then I always ask the family if there's any certain clothing that you may want them to be in or you think they might want to be wearing their favorite, you know, Cubs baseball shirt or Raiders or, or my favorite pink blouse, whatever. So um, undressing and dressing a body, um, brushing their hair, uh, changing the sheets and everything, making them look presentable for family that may want to come visit and then also for the funeral home when they arrive um you you do all of that you know quote dirty work so the funeral home has has a a body that's ready for transport um and so it hasn't happened to me yet but sometimes when when you're rolling a body to clean them and change them things can come out of orifices that you may not expect um so oh, just because things are just unclenched and relaxed right so <laughs> sphincters are no longer holding any fluids or or stuff uh sometimes things can come out of the mouth um it didn't happen to me but it happened to a co-worker of mine pretty much immediately after this client's death um they were vomiting uh, stool and and there's certain conditions you know physical conditions and illnesses and, and things with the bowels where you can actually vomit stool so um <laughs> hasn't happened to me yet but it, like, it'll happen it had to go reverse course through the intestines and then up the esophagus yes yes it can happen what? So there's not really there's not really a smell. Um, there's definitely a smell when you go into you know a nursing home. It smells stale. It smells like urine. Um, but there's really not a a smell because I respond immediately. Now, if the body had been there for 
say, 12 plus hours in a non air conditioned room and it's oh. 97 degrees outside, then yeah, there would be a definite smell of flesh decomposing. But for me, no, there's, there's no foul smell. It's just that look. As soon as I look at that body, I know that they're gone because they have that grayish, yellowish look to their skin. Ugh. Um, uh, question three. I think I know what they're asking. Are you allowed to have a relationship with someone? I think that means like, if it's like, well, not you because you're married, but I mean like, if it was like a super hot young guy who had six months to live, would you be allowed to be like, um, I don't know. Is that a, I mean, I would. Is there protocol risk- about that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would lose my license and I would be blacklisted from practicing nursing for life um, if it were reported and if people found out. Um, So, yeah, there's definite. But what's wrong with that? Like, he's like, hey, I got six months. I I, I just I want to have a relationship before. I don't want to die alone. Like, what's the the ethical infraction from, from job point of view? Um, just what's the word? Not insubordination. Um, I can't think of the word, but crossing the boundary of nurse and patient, nurse and client, crossing a professional boundary. And it happens. I mean, it happens in regular settings like, oh, you have a hot physical therapist and then you give him your number and then you end up dating. And, you know, that's a risk. Yeah, that's a yeah. risk that people take. And it, it, it can happen in, in any line of healthcare you know, or any professional, like, you know, with your lawyer or your teacher, um, it's just a risk that one would take. And then there's, there's consequences like, you know, educators get fired over having a relationship with the student. So, um, it, you know, the desire could be there, the emotions could be there, the physical desire could be there, but then you're risking, you're risking your professional uh, reputation, your license, your livelihood. You know, I don't do anything other than nursing. So if I lost my nursing license, what would I do? You know, I would, I would, I'd have to go get a job at, you know, a retail place or something or try to go back to school. Um, Especially where I live, I live in a, a rural area, small town and People know people and people talk and I I would be blacklisted and um, cancel culture. You know, that's that's real prevalent. I hear stories of that every day from, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, politicians and people in Hollywood. And yeah, it just it wouldn't be worth it to me. I've worked way too hard and, and way too much money in my education to risk anything like that. Um, has has anyone ever told you a secret before they died, like where a treasure map is, or a dark, <laughs> or a dark secret? Ooh, um, not yet. Like I said, I've only been doing this six months, but yeah. Um, in our line of work, we we get real close and personal, emotional with people, and we share stories. Um, the only thing that's happened and 
it really hurt and I regret it and I will never do it again is um, the client that I was talking about earlier who last time I saw them, they were not themselves because they were over-medicated and then they ended up dying from something totally unrelated to their diagnosis. So that person, about two weeks before they died, they asked me, they said, Molly, please don't tell my daughter and please don't tell anyone, but how, how long do I have? And I said, oh, you're, you have months. You, you're good. You have months. And they perked up a little bit. And I said, now let me tell you why. You're up. You're walking. You're talking. You know who you are. You know who I am. You're eating. You're drinking. You know, um, this person had months. But they ended up passing like 10 days later from something totally unrelated. So, um, no, nobody's ever really told me any secrets. But... Um, they didn't want me to tell their daughter, and then now I told them they have months, and then they just died 10 days later, so. Have you ever, not have you ever, but would you ever lie to a, cl a client, a patient, like, to make them feel better? Like. No, like, how, how like they're if, doing? Yeah, if, if they're like, give it to me straight, and you're like. No. Um, like, you're, you're, it's per tomorrow. <laughs> like. No, I would, I would, no, I would never, I would never lie directly like that because what I do is so serious and, you know, the ultimate, the ultimate goal is, is death. And if, so if truly, they had hours to go, you would say hours. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's hard because at that point when someone has hours, the person themselves, they are what we call comatose. They no longer open their eyes. They no longer respond to anything. They're not eating. They're not drinking. They still hear, though. Um, studies have shown that hearing is intact literally up until death. So that's why you still always want to talk to people and speak that they are present in the room. You don't speak as if they're gone already. Um, I, 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 this is not even related to what you do directly, but um, I saw that story of that kid who's in a coma for years. And then, like, when he came out of it, he would tell everybody of all the abuse he went through from all the other whatever. Um, because he was, even though you're in a coma and you're comatose, he could still hear and feel, like, what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. Dad. I mean, you can still hear. So if... It's like you're trapped in your own... Exactly. ...dead bag of flesh. And you can't... <laughs> yeah. Like, you can't do... Oh, God, that's a nightmare. That's like a twilight zone or something. Yeah. So that is the hardest question I'm asked. Um, but I'm I'm straight with it. And I'll say, you know, everyone's different. Truly, everyone is different. But there are um, very typical milestones of progressing toward death. So in this moment, I see that your loved one is at this state. And based on, um, based on studies and you know, based on studies and based on my experience, I can say that mom has uh, some hours. It could happen tonight or in a couple of days she could make it through the weekend, but it is close. So at this point, you just need to talk to her, love on her, tell her that you appreciate her being your mother because she can hear you. And um, yeah, that's hard because when I say those things, you know, people will burst into tears and sob and 
but that's what hospice is. Um, people and don't. I think know. They ultimately they respect you more for that. Oh yeah, you know, absolutely. Like and it's hard. Yelp review. Nana died I, on time. I do. I have to be, you know, not robotic, but I do have to be straightforward and blunt and um and tell them what's going on because people don't know about death. I didn't know about death seven months ago before I started doing this. Um, and it's scary. People fear it. So I'm the one who educates. That's basically what my job is, education. Education, education, and comfort and support. Has this job made you less afraid of death or, or yes. more, more, more comfortable with death? Um, so that's interesting. Um, I wanted to get into hospice as my first nursing role and I applied to several different positions and I ended up getting a job as a nurse for addiction medicine and a drug and alcohol rehab. But Oh, you wanted to do this way back in like San Diego era? Yes. I yes. didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, shit. Um, so the funny thing about hospice is you really don't need any nursing experience. You can go into hospice as a brand new baby nurse because guess what? You're not in, you're not in the business of healing and treatment and health and well-being. You're in the business of decline and support through death. So you it's don't almost need more therapy. It is. It is. Yeah. yeah. So when I took on this role and I applied and I got the job, I was really excited, but also fearful because again, I knew nothing about death. And my one and only goal for this position was I would not fear death and I would understand it. And I've completed that goal because now I know what it is. And as long as I don't die, you know, in some freak accident unexpectedly as long as i die naturally then then i'll know what's up and i can tell my husband and my loved ones and whoever like don't be afraid i'm i'm not hungry anymore and that's normal and that's natural so don't try to feed me and um so it's good it definitely made me more confident and and less fearful of death because death is scary Fifth question, this is the last question from them, which was, uh, do have, oh, do you believe in ghosts now? Oh, so <laughs> I learned something. Yeah, I learned a little um, wives tale or, or whatever, if you will. So you always want to open a window when someone is on their deathbed, just a crack, because if you don't, then their soul will be trapped in that room, in that house. And so it's always a thing to open a window. And if the window's not already open by a staff member or a loved one or a daughter, then you very discreetly try to open it yourself. Um, but yeah, I believe that. I had a... So 
that first and only but did, witness Wait, did that. you believe that before this job or is that something you kind of picked oh, up? Oh, yeah. No, I do. I totally believe in ghosts. And I do now even more. Okay, gotcha. So um, there's, you know, there's signs that people will believe like, oh, that's him watching over me or that's him with me. And But what happened with that first death that I witnessed and I was there holding her hand and and just supporting her and loving her through her last breath. Um, about 10 minutes later, when I was doing that post-mortem care, I was washing her face and the screen of the window fell down out of nowhere and it hit me in the leg. And I totally believe that was her. Just fucking with me because that's the kind of woman she was. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was awesome. That didn't scare the shit out of you? Uh, kind scared of. scared the shit out of me. <laughs> I mean, no, 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 driving home. Bye, guys. Yeah. <laughs> and what was, what was funny with that one is she loved 80s music. So, like I said, we try to create experiences for people. And so, as I was there coaching her through her death, holding her hand, stroking her hair, telling her, it's okay, you're tired, you fought hard enough, it's okay to let go. I was playing 80s music quietly on my phone on Pandora, and I had the phone right by her head on her pillow, and that song, Alive and Kicking, comes on, and I'm like, <laughs> oh, fuck, sorry, whatever your name is, but that was, that was kind of ironic and funny. And then, that, and then 10 minutes later, she threw that screen at me. The, the, is that the, the song by um, Simple Minds? I think there's, yeah, I think it's Simple Minds, but. That's cute. Have you, do you ever think that like, because of now of the, the line of work that you're in, that you'll maybe like encounter some ghosts or that they're. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, because what we do is, you know, we try to have a comfortable, supported, dignified death, not only for the client, but also the caregivers, the family, the loved ones who are around. And I have not had a bad death yet. Um, you know, we've had good ones. And so if anything ever happens or some coincident happens and, and I can relate it to a specific person, then I would think, yeah, that, that might be them. Um, and just kind of off topic, but it's a lot easier when clients and family members are religious because if they feel like I'm going home, I'm going to see my husband now, I'm going to see my wife and they're happy and they're excited and they're anticipating it and it's joyful. So if a family member and loved ones are religious, it just makes it so much easier and so much better because they're like, okay, we're sending you off to heaven now and we'll see you on the other side. What would you say to someone who wants to go into this career? Like, what, what would your advice be on, like, how to prepare? Like, some tips on, like, okay, uh, what to look forward to or, or, you know? That's a really good question. Um, so since I came, came to hospice kind of out of nowhere, like, I didn't work in the hospital, I didn't work in a nursing home, and, and the biggie is I had never witnessed death ever in my life. So... 
I would just ask that question. Have you ever experienced an actual death, someone taking their last breath? And if they said yes, then I would be like, okay, so, you know, you kind of know what it's like. And then, and then I'd tell them, you know, more experiences. But if someone said no, then I would kind of assess, you know, are they really emotional? Are they timid? Are they shy? Are they, um, they're not assertive. They're not confident. would kind of just assess them as a person. And, and if, if they weren't so strong and confident, then I would just try to coach them through it verbally. Just tell them, tell them what's up. Tell them like I have to tell the families. Yeah. Mom's dying. It's not going to be today, but it could be uh, next Friday, and uh, you, you have to be blunt, but you have to be very sweet and soft, and you have to pad the awful news that you're about to deliver. So let's say, you know, 30, 40, 50 years from now, when, when you get around to that time, would you want um, someone like you, like hospice for the oh. last six months? Absolutely. Yes, 100%. Just because it's it's easier to have, you know, someone there that you can kind of lean on and trust for like the hard stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I mean, most people, if asked, would say, okay, do you want to die in a nursing home? Do you want to die by yourself in, in your room with no one and nothing? Or, you know, do you want to die at home around your loved ones in your bed with your surroundings with your animals most people would say yes that's what i want right yeah and, absolutely yeah and to be to be supported in that and for it to be fulfilling and you know quality of life is what we what we focus on it's no longer quantity cuz you have 6 months or less um so yeah i absolutely will have somebody like me and and i hope that i pass in that manner i hope that i don't pass unexpectedly in an accident or or you know something that happens where you don't have time to make it home um it hasn't happened to me yet but it happens where you're doing an admission and the person dies during the admission oh jesus christ yeah so so that's a hard one because they weren't comfortable most likely they weren't with their things, they didn't have pictures around them and they didn't have their daughter there and they didn't have, you know, families flying in from Tucson. And, and that's the thing, that's the misconception is doctors and people believe that they can't have hospice until they're literally going to die in an hour. No, it's like six months out. So let's get you on service now. That's, cr wow. I guess, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you, do you think, I know, I mean, you're, you're, you probably don't feel it, but you're young. <laughs> Do you think you'll be doing this uh, 10, 20, 30 years from now? Um, that's a good question because I'm very close to upgrading my license from RN to NP, so registered nurse to nurse practitioner. Um, What's that? What's the difference I, of that? Um, so the difference between nurse practitioner and registered nurse is basically you can do all of the things that a doctor does so you can prescribe meds you can diagnose things like oh shit okay 
You have a you have a sore throat and a runny nose and a sniffle. Let me look in your mouth. Let me look up your nose. Let me look in your ears and let me diagnose you with upper respiratory infection or sinusitis and let me check your allergies. Let me prescribe you an antibiotic and a steroid and follow up in two weeks if you're not better. Do, do you catch yourself diagnosing people just like in restaurants when you're sitting down or when you? Oh my gosh! Up? Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, not only with physical stuff, but more with psych, psych stuff. Like, oh, I think that person's schizophrenic or that person is, you know, whatever. But well, yeah, we're, we're not staying. We're getting off this elevator. We're taking the next one. That dude in the corner has got issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, I do really love what I do in hospice. It's a very niche um, area of nursing. And of course, I respect all fields and specialties of nursing, but for me it's it comes down to two labor and delivery and hospice and death that's what it's all about that's birth and that's death so you'd say this is one of the most rewarding um uh important like very important moment of life your birth and your death when did i don't even know why i'm asked this is a weird history question but when did we it's just as humans start doing this do you know like this whole like a, a specialist to kind of help you at the end like Ooh, that's, that's have we been doing this for centuries question. i don't even know um yeah i mean doulas have been around before labor and delivery nurses were around and you know um wet nurses if you know what that is um a couple hundred plus years ago when a woman of status would have a baby um if they were too busy or they just didn't want to nurse breastfeed they had women um workers and common folk and servants be what's called a wet nurse and if they if they themselves were lactating for whatever reason um they would hand off the baby to someone else to nurse and a woman of high status would not do that because it's, you know, she doesn't have time or mm. it ruins her body or whatever. So people have been assisting in, um, how do I say this? Uh, times of need uh, physically. So um, like menstruation even, you know, in, in the Bible, when a woman was menstruating, she was shunned away from the house for seven to 10 days because she was dirty. That's just science. That's just science. Yeah. So um, I don't know exactly when Medicare started offering end-of-life hospice benefits, um, but I think it's wonderful. Um, I think it's a wonderful benefit. It's super important. And when we sign the documents, there's like 11 pages that need to be signed to come onto our hospice service. And and I let them know how important this is. This is bigger than buying a house, bigger than buying a car. This is bigger than your marriage certificate, your birth certificate. Like, this is a big fucking deal to fill this paperwork out because you are accepting help with death. Yeah, I didn't think about that. It, it's the last decision. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's it such an interest. You know, you don't think decision. about it. You you never think about it in from that angle, like from 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 like from the end looking the other way around you know that's interesting mm -hmm. yeah and you know um most people are naive ignorant not in a bad way but ignorant meaning they just don't know and 
And me too. I didn't know about any of this seven months ago. Yeah, I'm completely ignorant about it. That's why I, th- and, I find all of this fascinating. Yeah, and it's scary. I mean, death is scary. People are afraid of dying. And I was too. So do you believe in an afterlife then? Um, I'm not religious, but I do believe in doing good. Um, and, and I don't know. A lot of people say like, oh, he's in a better place. She's in a better place. But you know, this, this is a good place too. And, and I can do good things here while I'm alive. And okay. So you're a pagan heathen. <laughs> Got yeah. it. Okay. Got it. Exactly. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know what I believe, but. Well, what if you're, what if your, your clients or why do I keep saying that your patients, if they ask you, like, do you just kind of go along with their um, story? Or? Well, I'll tell them, you know, I'm not going to lie and say like, oh, I'm saved. Jesus is my savior. I'm not going to say anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but whatever they express, I will support that because sure, sure. if, if daughter is holding mom's hand when she's 10 minutes away from death and she's talking about mom's going to see dad soon and mom's not going to be in pain anymore. And I'm not going to be like, nah, I don't believe in that. That's pushing your glasses up. Actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no. So basically, um, like I said, it, it makes it a lot easier if people believe in something because then it's actually more joyous than it is sorrowful. Sorrow. I can't say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With sorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah. I mean, just go, just go with the flow. Like, l- let it be a, a exactly. healing. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, what's the? You mentioned it briefly when we went. I don't know why we went down our history, but is there a protocol for, let's say, like like a woman who's pregnant, you know, and 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 asking for your services, you know, like. Do you have to let the the baby die with her, or like, what's the? Is there a protocol for that kind of thing? Um, that's a really good question. Most likely, that would be handled medically before they came on service. So whether they would um, try to induce natural labor early, or they would do like an emergent early. Um, cesarean section and then put the baby in the NICU. Like, as a like, I'm feeder. talking like, what if she's just like three, three months or four months pregnant or something like, um, is that even really good question? Yeah. I mean, that would definitely be something that would have to be, uh, dealt with prior, like probably aborted because then again, it always comes down to liability and money. So, and lawsuits. So, you know, if we were to take that client on service and she's three, four weeks pregnant, but she has a month to live, and then not only would be would we have to be managing her death, but we would also be responsible for that fetus. So right. yeah. for us, there's no way that we would ever take that on um, without that being handled beforehand, whether they abort the baby or whether she's far along enough to where they could you know, have the baby born. So that's, that's a good example because I had a friend, um, a Navy buddy of mine who died at the age of 27 from breast cancer. And she was pregnant when she was diagnosed and she actually even started chemo while pregnant, which I didn't know that could be done. Yeah. I Um, thought that would, that seems like it would be horrible for the child. Totally detrimental. Yeah. So just bombarding um, it with 
Yeah. So she ended up having that baby um, to term, so not premature. And then wow. sadly, she passed away like five months after that baby was born. So that's such an interesting question. But um, I don't think any hospice agency would ever touch that due to the liability of lawsuits and such. Yeah, I mean, that, I guess it makes sense. Like, handle the red tape first because we're not going to jump into there until everything's cleared up. Right. And then, right. I mean, and but then can you imagine if they're like, no, she wants to die with the baby in her? Like, that's even, that's like a double tragedy. Uh, yeah, then that would be like a huge ethical choice. So like, for example, the state I live in, it is a right to die state. And so um, per policy, what does that mean? so a person can, um, can procure um, aid in death via pharmaceutical medications. Like Vorky and stuff? Kind of, yeah, yeah. So I live in a state where we are a right-to-die state, and um, for policy, my agency does allow us nurses to be involved in that, but um, per my office, because we're a nationwide agency, but my local office, um, we, we don't support that, so we don't want any of our nurses directly involved in that, um, but other nurses will, and... So the law is um, I could not administer the lethal cocktail and I could not be present. So if I'm present, but wife is going to administer the lethal cocktail and then I'm just going to stand by and support while everything happens. And then after everything happens, I will pronounce death. Um, we're not supposed to be present. We're not supposed to give meds, but we can be outside in our car waiting for mom to open the door and call us in and listen to the heart and, gotcha. you know, pronounce time of death. Like as long as you're off legal PM. property. Right. Gotcha. So it gets really sticky because if anybody has questions or doesn't like what you're doing, then, then you're risking everything, you know, your license, your reputation, everything, your livelihood. Now, do you have to abide by religious stuff? Like, um, if they, if they're like, oh, you know, Nana, it was this religion X, Y, Z. And so you have to do this or blood transfer or anything. Do you ever run into any of those obstacles in terms of religion? Um, yeah, we did. What was it? Um, it was more just like a modesty thing. So we ran into a client who denied any like bathing or any care to, you know, any genital area or any changing or wiping or anything. Um, he didn't even like his wife to do it. So uh, it was more so just like a modesty thing than anything. Um, haven't run into any situation where if there were a certain religion or custom where the body would need to like sit and be for hours or days. Um, and that's that's sticky <laughs> because... You know, you want to respect people's customs and culture and religion, but then also you have a decomposing body there and it, it needs to be handled, you know, uh, dignified and, and with cleanliness. So that's a really good question. Have not ran into that yet. Because you know how they have the, um, is it Mormons? Or it's like, we can't get the vaccine because it's like, or one of those yeah. things, something with like a, they, you can't have foreign blood in you because it makes you impure. Or right. Something. And it's kind of like, okay, so what supersedes what? Like the medical, the federal stuff or religion or 
I, I right. imagine when it comes to death, you, you might run into those kind of conflicts as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, first and foremost, you always want to respect the client and the loved ones and their beliefs and cultures. But if it ever comes down to, you know, breaking protocol or risking, you know, risking investigation or fines or anything, that's when we would just step in and be like, yeah, no, we need to have the funeral home come take the body now. <laughs> Um, last question, um, uh, how, wait, hold on. Oh, <clears throat> how have you grown as a person, um, doing this job in the last, I think you said six months you've been, mm. been doing this, um, or what, or what kind of larger life lessons have you, uh, learned or, or um, taken away? I think I, I think I stop and smell the flowers now. Um, especially where I'm at, like I said, I live in a, a sparsely populated state in a rural area and there's lots of natural beauty and I drive all across three counties for my job. I cover a radius of like 200 plus miles. Holy and when shit. <laughs> yeah. So when I'm driving and I see. You get reimbursed for gas, right? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so when damn. I, you know. I see the mountains, I see the lake, um, I see them now because you never know what's going to happen. Yes, most of my clients know that they're ill and know that they're terminal, but I had one client who was diagnosed with cancer and then he passed 15 days later. So sometimes it can happen real fast and I don't ever want to be on my deathbed with any regrets. That's the worst if you, you know, I regret I didn't do this or re I regret I did do this and I have a strained relationship with my daughter and now I'm going to die and she won't talk to me. So I don't ever want to be in that situation. Um, and I, th I think I talk to people about that now too. Um, I ask clients when they're uh, you know, alert and oriented enough to know what I'm saying. Is there anyone that you want to call? Can I help you make a phone call? Can I help you make a FaceTime? Do you want to mm, talk to your so daughter good. in New Jersey? That's so um, good. And then when it comes to the point when the client is imminent and comatose, but they can still hear, I ask wife, wife, is there anybody that you think husband would want to talk to? Maybe his old high school football buddy or the neighbor or, you know, let's make some phone calls. And so what? He's not going to talk back, but he can hear. Let's get high school track buddy on the phone and be like, hey, friend, remember when we won that meet and we went to state? So it's all about like love bombing, basically. It's all about overloading them with pleasure and joy and love. So when they can still eat and drink, fuck, if they want like a whiskey sour, give them a whiskey sour. It's not going <laughs> to hurt them. <laughs> Seriously. If, if they want ice cream, if they want pizza, as long as they can safely eat it without choking or aspirating, you give them everything they want. You don't worry about the calories. You don't worry about their diabetes. You give them everything they want until the last moment. That's that's so you so basically the main takeaway you've had is kind of like you 
your jobs taught you to kind of appreciate what you have right now and how much more time assuming that you have to do it. Um, oh yeah. So like, is that because some of your patients have expressed regrets to you and you're like, Oh man, like almost like cautionary tales. Um, kind of, I mean, nobody's directly expressed anything, but I did have a client who, um, when people stop eating and drinking, they usually have like maybe seven to 10 days or less just because, you know, lack of nutrition and hydration. Um, but I had one woman who was no longer eating, no longer drinking, bed bound, completely comatose. And she held on for three and a half weeks. Dude, how is that and, possible? And, and the reason why is because she had a very strained relationship with her daughter. And then once the daughter finally came and saw her and they reconciled whatever they reconciled, then she passed away like a couple hours later or the next day. Um, and so what I've also learned, which is cool, is people are very, very, very in control of their death. So if someone says, I want to die on Christmas, um, they can make it happen. And if someone says, you know, I want to make it through the holidays and then I'm okay, or I had a client who wanted to die the day after Thanksgiving and he did. Um, and then I had uh, my coworker who I wasn't there with that client, but this client was sitting in a chair and she was in great, great pain. And my coworker was on one side holding one hand and the loved one was on the other side holding the other hand. And the woman asked, what time is it? And they said, oh, it's 10.41 a.m. And then she died. She wanted to know what her time of death would be, and she died right then. That is crazy. It what, is what, crazy. What do you think that is? is? Do you think that's like the whole letting go mechanism is true? Because you've seen it where it's like, okay, everything's fine. You can let go now. And then they and then they just they take they a deep breath and they just let go. But what do you think that is like in terms of your physiology? Like is your brain just relaxing and it's like, what is that? Like what, so, what's, what's unplugging that, that you can so do? I, th I think, um, I think at that point people are already gone, meaning, you know, and, and whatever you believe in heaven or reincarnation or whatever. But I think the, person's soul if you will is already gone and then there's just the pistons are firing and the mechanisms are going and the gears are grinding and then there's just one little thing that has to interrupt the chain of functioning and then and then they'll pass away um but what i believe through my experience and i've never been told this and i never read it in a book but i believe when people are truly on their deathbed they have to reconcile and justify their entire life the good the bad the ugly um and the re the regrets and the joys and until they go through that process they won't let go and sometimes like me for example if i were to die tomorrow i'd be happy i'd be okay and i wouldn't have any regrets you'd have but, no regrets no. no i would i would have no regrets but let's wow. say let's say i die at you know 86 and now I have to reconcile 46 more years and some shit has happened and and then I might have some hiccups that I would have to 
go through the process of acceptance. And it's it's mostly strained relationships. It's mostly, you know, grudges or bad blood or whatever. But mm-hmm. people need to go through that whole process before they let go. And also, people need to hear that it's okay. Even if their doctor tells them, okay, I'm sorry, there's there's no more we can do, so you know, you have six months or less and just try to enjoy your life. And then if if daughter is like, mom, it's okay, we'll be okay, I love you, but we'll still be okay when you're gone. People need to know that it's okay. And it's just like any other thing. So like your teacher can tell you, hey, you need to shape up and do this. Or your doctor can tell you, hey, you need to, you need to watch your watch your diet and lose weight. It's not until like someone else will tell you the same damn thing or something will happen that it'll click in your mind and then you'll be like, oh, fuck, okay, they were right. Right. So so I've told people before and I've told people a lot of times like, hey, it's okay. You're hurting. You've been fighting. You're going to be okay. Your daughter's going to be okay. It's okay to let go. It's okay to rest now. It's okay to go home if they believe in that. And I have told people that to their face, in their ear, while I'm squeezing their hand, while I'm stroking their hair. And they need to hear that from someone else other than their daughter. Right. Yeah. Because sometimes just a new voice is, it's the same reason why, you know, sports teams sometimes, like uh, most of the time, they do better when they get, uh, when they get a brand new coach. The coach isn't right. saying anything different. He's still saying catch right. the ball, play some defense, <laughs> but it's just, it's a new voice saying it. And so it yeah. means more, you know what I mean? So it, when they hear a third person saying it, especially since y- you have that, that, that really gentle bedside manner, you have that cadence, that comforting kind of demeanor. Um, and it, it's coming from someone new and someone they clearly trust and things like that. So um, just by default, you carry that much more weight and value. Right. And say, and so. so it it may be coming from like some sort of place of authority. Right. And right. yeah, this is this is a very gentle position. It's a very touchy emotional subject and and everybody has their different style. Every nurse has their different personality and you know, there could be my coworker A who is like yeah, you're going to die in two days. And then there could be me who who would be, you know, a little more soft about Starts it. Starts a stopwatch. Right. Jesus. But I do, you know, so per my state law, and it's the first time I did it, it was it was like really profound and, and poignant. Um, but per my state law, I have to listen with my stethoscope on their chest for breathing sounds and heart sounds for one entire full minute. And... Um, you know, I'm I'm doing that to verify that, yes, this person is dead. Their heart is no longer beating. They are no longer breathing. And then you verbally pronounce time of death or 58 p.m. So if no one's there, I will say time of death. But if anyone is present, I always say time of passing because it just sounds nicer Absolutely. and more gentle. Absolutely. And no one taught me that. I just figured that out on my own and and that's what I do. That's and insane. After... You just by you have that you have the personality for it. You know what I mean? Like it's it goes beyond just following the bullet points of what to do. You you have that just kind of 
um, right. personality that, that, that fits and works and you pick up and you can read the room, you know, you, you, you can read the vibes of, of how to go about right. stuff. So, um, right. That's probably why you excel so much so fast in such a short amount of time at this job. And yeah. And I mean, everybody's different. Everyone has their gifts. Um, I definitely know that I'm not assertive enough to ever be in the position of like a lawyer or, you know, a politician, I would never fit that role. But but this kind of role, yeah, I, I think I was made for this. Well, what's the training like for, for your job? Like, is it extensive cool. or? Because I know you said, I know you said that in, in actual like doctor school, I think it was like four hours or something two, like that. Two hours. <laughs> two, yeah. yeah. So, so for, to, to specialize in it, what did you have to do to, to train? Um, well, of course, you know, of course, there's a whole bunch of online modules that are like, you know, um, dying with dignity and the right to die and respect and peace. And um, dignity is, is a real big thing in hospice and geriatric care in general. Um, you know, people are no longer able to care for themselves, no longer to go to the bathroom normally, they can't feed themselves. And, and with that comes um, a loss of dignity. So you really have to be sensitive to those types of things, just in nursing in general. Um, training, so of course, there's the typical corporate standard training, but really, it's just like anything else. It's on the job training. And that's, that's what's really fun about hospice is you never know what you're going to get. You know, people can turn on a dime and people can be well. And then two days later, they're gone. So uh, you're very much on your toes. And I think my military training actually has served me very well in nursing because you adapt and overcome and you respond to change appropriately and it doesn't bother you. And how you said how long that took how long? Um, so the corporate training is like about two weeks and depending on your, uh, nursing experience, the on the job training can be anywhere from like one to four weeks where you go out on visits with the nurse that you're shadowing and, you know, um, they can't really be planned. The only ones that are planned visits are the routine follow-up visits, but, you never know when you might get an admission and what their condition may be. If they're a cancer patient, if they're a heart patient, if they're a dementia patient, um, you never know what state they're going to be in. Of course, you know, you read, you read the um, doctor's notes and, and all that. So, you know, their like their latest status, but you never know what you're going to get. And then you never know when some, someone's going to pass. So you can't plan your first death visit you know, um, so you just really have to go with the flow and be open and be very comfortable. And you really have to be aware of your face, which sounds funny, but um, like actors, they're aware of their expressions, they're aware of their posture, um, the message that they're sending through their eyes, through their tone of voice, um, the words that they choose to say. Um, so you really have to be kind of like an actress. Uh, you have to be in tune with reading the room. Um, you know, cause sometimes you're like, okay, should I hug this person? Should I not? Should I offer them like a gentle touch on their hand? Should I not? You know, 
So you really have to just be hyper aware of the situation and respond in a manner that you think is appropriate. Oh, I think about that, like different cultures and stuff within each Oh, yeah, cultures. And, yeah. and the biggest one is like religion. So do you know if this client, if this family has a religious affiliation or not? If they do, then it's definitely positive and productive and helpful to, you know, pray with them or talk about those kind of things, talk about God, talk about heaven. Um, here in the area that I'm in, this very rural area, I've only encountered one different type of religion, um, Jehovah's Witness, and they're extremely modest. So uh, they were pretty restrictive in the care that they would allow us to give. Um, but if I were, you know, if I were back in San Diego County, I would be aware of um, Arabic cultures. Uh, let me think, all the different types of cultures I worked with. Vietnamese, Arabic, Russian, Spanish, of course, um, Catholicism, um, you know, Buddhism, um, a lot of different things, but here, kind of unfortunately, because I do like that. Unfortunately, I don't. I don't really have all of those different mixes here. Do you have to do like research before you like take a case? Like, okay, so what do they? What are the parameters of what's acceptable? Like, what do they like? What do they want? And like, you know what I mean? Like, I guess if the whole purpose is to like make the person more comfortable and ergo their family, when you take on a case, do you have to do any research, or do you just when you get there, you ask them? Hey, so tell me about your family and, and the patient. Kind of both. So when we get a new referral, we will always get records, um, recent hospital records, recent doctor's visits. And in that will come their social history, their family history, their education level, their religious affiliation, um, you know, their their home. So lots of different factors so let's let's say if they live in a group home it'll say that if they have a history of homelessness it'll say that um here there's a lot of indian tribes so if they're affiliated with any um certain tribe and what are their practices so me personally yes i i will dig deep through all of those records and if anything pops up that is uh significant i will note that i will research that and then i will respond accordingly. Um, and then yes, sometimes you just have to ask, you know, if I can't, if I, if I don't know, I will ask, Hey client, do you have any, um, religious or spiritual affiliations or needs? Is there anything that I can help you with at this time? Um, a big one for me, that's super important is, um, a fair amount of my clients, uh, have been Catholic and it is, of dire importance that I assure they receive their last rites before they pass. Um, best case scenario, when they are alert and oriented enough to know that they are receiving their last rites. Um, sometimes it doesn't happen and, and they receive their last rites where they're comatose and incoherent and they're very imminent and they will be passing within a couple hours. Um, but for me, that is super, super important because I am advocating for my client, and I know that they will not be happy nor comfortable if they were to pass without having that.
thanks. All right. So, uh, yeah, thanks for stopping by. Uh, amazing insight talk. Crazy, crazy as shit. I had no idea um, what it was about. But, uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. This was really fun and really interesting. And I think it's, it's important for people to know what I do because death is scary and people don't know a lot about death until they experience it. So um, thank you for allowing me to share. Yeah, thank you. And um, we'll see you for the next, uh, on another episode coming up too. And uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, have a good night. All right. Happy Super Bowl. Thank you. Okay, wait, hold on really quick before you go. Uh, you're watching the Super Bowl, right? Yes. Who do you have, who, who do you think is going to win? I mean, I, I haven't been following any of their stats or anything. I only really follow college football. I follow Notre Dame really closely. Um, I do follow the Bears, but they kind of, you know, <laughs> didn't go very far this season. Um, who do you want to win? I'm just, I just, I want the Rams to win only because of loyalty of, you know, California. So Okay, 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 okay. okay. Although um, Cincinnati, I do really like that airport, so... <laughs> So that would be great if they won too. No oh, Bengals. Why? Dude, a great airport. Just fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the best airports um, domestically, I believe. So go Bengals. All right. Well, we'll see how well that ages. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. By tonight. You turned me on. Take me home Where the magic's from me